I am sitting in my home office and I have a gentleman in front of me who I've never met before, uh, who uh, a, on a whim ended up here, probably took a wrong turn. Um, can you tell tell me who you are? Yeah. yeah, I'm the guy that walked in off the street, right? He's just some random guy that walked in off the street. I was walking my dog and, 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 we, did, and we did take a couple wrong turns to get here. But, yeah. uh, right, so my name is Jay Hewlings. I'm a candidate for Congress in Texas, Texas 23, which is uh, big district that stretches from San Antonio all the way to El Paso with a huge chunk of the border, U.S.-Mexico border. And uh, I've been in this race about two months. Before that, I was a federal prosecutor in San Antonio and Del Rio, which is a little town on the, on the river, on the border. And uh, before that, I was a, a staffer on, on Capitol Hill. I worked on the House Intelligence Committee staff. I was a counsel. And before that, I worked for Congresswoman Jane Harmon of California, doing uh, was her legislative director, basically her lead policy advisor. So you're running around America talking to people uh, about this race in 2018, which is a yes. pretty important one, to say the least, right? Yeah, we think so. Yeah. Well, it, it's... It, it's one of the top targets in the country for, for a variety of reasons. The, the, you're, the, the, the race Democratic that you're Party. in. Yes. Got it. And uh, part, partly it's because Hillary Clinton won this district by four points. But it's held by a Republican who narrowly won it. And uh, it's one of those seats where if the Democrats are going to take back the House, they kind of have to win this seat and seats like it. Hmm. And uh, so it's, it's high stakes. You know, the, um, eventually we expect both, between both sides... Uh, the race to cost $20, $30 million, which is kind of incredible for a mostly rural West Texas seat. And so how did you end up running? And I have a lot of questions about your background that we'll get into in a second. But how did you end up running there? Like what you, you're... <laughs> it's, it's a good question. I, and I get it a lot. Um, you know, I, I didn't grow up in Texas. My, uh, I did go to high school in Texas. I went to high school in Austin, uh, Westwood High School in Northwest Austin. Um, but... Uh, I know we'll get into it. My my parents are uh, now retired CIA, so we moved every couple of years. So you so. so you grew up with parents who were in the Central Intelligence Agency. Yeah, they Did, were they were undercover almost my entire life. And where, so where were you born? Italy. I was born in Rome, Italy. And did you know, how, how, what age did you realize mom and dad had worked for the CIA and I'm technically a spy? Thirteen. Thirteen. Yes. What was that? Uh, so we, you know, when we were overseas, most of... Ten of my first thirteen years were overseas, and you know, we bounce around every couple of years. And we're parents are mostly working out of embassies. I thought they were diplomats, but we come back to the states, and you know we're not in Washington D.C. We're we're elsewhere in Virginia, and it started to dawn on me like, what are we doing here? And my dad pulled me aside and said, Hey, we this is what I do for a living. Uh, I'm I'm a spy. Your mom's a spy. Was he allowed to tell you that? Yeah, it's sort of oh. expected that when your kids at 13 or 14, it's called they're, they're witting. Uh, it's called what? Sorry, witting. W i t t i n g. Mm-hmm. And it's so agency kids are deemed to have a secret level security clearance at 13 because they're presumed at around that age to learn what their parents do. Hmm. It's an interesting thing to put on a kid though, because it's hey, here's this national security secret. You have to keep it, and it's sometimes a lot to swallow, um, but uh, for the most part, I did, and you know some of my close friends knew, and and I went to Virginia Tech for college, and uh, Tech is an interesting place because it's a lot of Northern Virginia kids. So, out of my good friends, a couple of them were agency kids, a couple of them were military kids, and so we were a little more open about our parents' background in that environment because everybody came from the same world. Um, but I remember when I t- my dad told me, I kind of figured out what something was not quite right. And, and he told me, he and my mom told me. And my first question is, if, you, you know, a 13 year old boy is, do you kill people? That's what I was, that was my first question. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and he kind of rolled his eyes and said, no, that's not what this job is. I mean, we, he said, look, we go, to, we go to cocktail parties. You've seen a lot of those cocktail parties. We've got people from all sorts of different nationalities and different embassies and you develop friendships and you find people who are dissatisfied with where they work or their country and you convince them to betray their country usually for money. Hmm. And it's a long process. It takes uh, years of usually friendship and and, um, the right kind of, you know, you have to make your source feel comfortable. Uh, and then you have to handle them delicately. 
and there's a lot of trade craft that goes into how you meet with them and how you communicate with them and all of that. And, um, but you know, my parents are cold war people you know, mm. and they're mostly chasing Russians and they, uh, uh, you know, there was they, yeah, they've had training. My dad's you know, jumped out of airplanes and had to, did, did you ask, that, but, did you ask them, if they ever feared for their safety, or did you fear for their safety, or not? I mean, I guess I didn't ask that because I sort of knew the environment we were in, and it felt comfortable. Mm. I mean, we were there was definitely you know the eighties in Europe um, was particularly in Greece. I mean, the the station chief was killed in Athens mm. uh, brutally, actually, yeah. and there's um, a fair amount of violence targeted toward American diplomats, and that usually the at agency people when they're identified. Specifically, that's why the cover is so important. Um, so, yeah, I was always aware of that. And I guess the extra added dimension of the agency maybe tweaked it a little bit. But I was always sort of aware that, um, you know, you have to be careful when you're, when you're walking around. Even in European capitals, you have to, um, you know, be wary of strangers. It's not that different than being in a big city here, frankly. So how did you go from... Living all over the yeah. place, parents of CIA, to running for Congress, to in, running Texas. For Congress in Texas. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, kind of an interesting story. So I, I went to high school in Austin, so I knew some bit of Texas. Uh, and then, of course, back east for college, and then and I went to Harvard for law school. And I met Juliana Joaquin Castro. And we became friends. We were in the same class. There's not that many people with Texas ties, so we, we found each other pretty quickly. Um, that'll become important later. So I... When I got out of school, I clerked for a judge. Just happened to be out here in California, and uh, I thought I'd try on Los Angeles. And I think, well, look, I haven't really grown up anywhere. Let's try California. And what year? When is this? This was two thousand and one. Okay. And uh, so I went to a law firm here. Uh, had a good experience and three or four years here. But it, it, you know, I always knew I wanted to do public service, and so I kind of felt a calling to to leave the firm and do something else. And so get to Thanksgiving of 2004. My parents are overseas. They're in Uruguay. So it's too far to go for Thanksgiving. It's a nine-hour flight. And my little sister was in grad school in, um, in San Antonio, St. Mary's University. And so we decided to go there for Thanksgiving. And she had a very good friend um, who I hadn't met yet and who would just happened to be Miss San Antonio. And so I told my sister, you need to introduce me to your friend. <laughs> and at the same time, I called the Castro brothers. Hey, we're coming to town. Let's, let's get together. So we all go out together. And uh, Miss San Antonio and I hit it off. She's now my wife. And the same night, Julian uh, Castro said, hey, why don't you quit your job at that law firm and come work for me? I'm going to run for mayor. Uh, this will be fun. So you put those two things together. And I decided, yeah, I'm going I'm to do this. So I... Quit the job, drove east, came to San Antonio, and worked on Julian's uh, 2005 mayoral campaign. And so what is it like being, I mean, it's, I, I kind of imagine, <clears throat> I think of like the movie The Martian, yeah. uh, and, or the book, and, um, uh, and this guy that gets stuck on this planet where the whole <laughs> planet is trying to expel him. What is it like being a Democrat in Texas? You know, it, it's... There's a lot more Democrats there than people realize. I mean, so take the last presidential. Hillary lost Texas by nine points without putting any effort or money in. She lost Ohio by 10. She lost Iowa by 11. Texas, with no effort, was closer than those battleground states. The, uh, the, the, you know, the cities in Texas are pretty democratic. So, that's, so you're talking about like Austin, Houston, places? San Antonio, San Antonio. Dallas even, Fort Worth even. Um, Houston, Harris County, which is where Houston is, went solidly Democratic for the first time um, this last cycle. City of San Antonio has traditionally been uh, uh, pretty Democratic. Austin, of course, is, is, is very liberal. So the cities have always had their own sort of version of you know, Texas Democrats. It's, it's not the Democratic Party you would find out here in California or in New York. It's its own thing. Um, but it exists, and it's you know forty something percent and growing. So there is a real possibility over the years, as demographics change, as organization improves, to be able to compete statewide. So do you think that there's a world in which, uh, as the cities continue to grow, 
that um, excuse the military helicopters flying above us right now sure. uh, <laughs> um, do you think there's a world uh, where um, uh, where Texas becomes a blue state I think purple state is realistic a purple yeah. state yeah so I mean it could, and it does could that be mean a state. purple state is that it would win democratically or it will go sometimes blue and sometimes huh. red and mm-hmm. you know I know um, there's you know the Castros are old longtime friends of looking at it very carefully and are going to pick their spots. But I think there's, you know, paying attention to the number of people that move in from out of state. And there are a lot, people like me, frankly. Um, and there's just the demographics of the state by itself are changing. It's a minority majority state. That's a big and growing Hispanic population. Uh, now, you have to understand, though, that just because people are Hispanic doesn't mean they necessarily vote lockstep Democratic, particularly yeah. in Texas. There's, well, it's because the, the issue for them, I mean, I have friends that are of this ilk, and the issue is not, they don't think about anything but maybe abortion or gay rights or things like that, and, right? Yeah. Well, and it depends regionally. I mean, so you know, my mom's Mexican-American. She's from Tucson, Arizona. And, um, you know, she's... So, you know, when... I remember I had a conversation with my grandfather when I was eight or nine years old. And, uh, you know, I asked him, you know, Pap, are you Mexican? Are we Mexican? What, is, what does that mean exactly? And he used it as an opportunity to tell his grandson about the history of his family. And he said, look, the Garcias have been in Tucson, Arizona since there's been a Tucson, Arizona. We were here when it was Spain. We're here when it's Mexico. We're here now. We didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. Um, but, you know, there's... Uh, you know, he had family that had gone back and was living in Nogales, and people went back and forth. And his mom and her whole generation, and I mentioned his mom because she lived a long time, uh, they, they only, she only spoke Spanish, like even well into the 1980s. And not a word of English didn't assimilate with the rest of Anglo-American society at all. And um, But my grandfather and his younger brothers and sisters did. English language schools, he served in the military in World War II as... As an officer, as a, a squadron commander of a pretty famous fighter pilot squadron, he, you know, it's an integrated unit, and um, you know, had this, he made his way into the middle class using middle, uh, military service. GI Bill got him a, an associate's degree as, as an accountant. He took a job with the state of Arizona, and raised his two kids to go forward. You know, yeah. Grab your little, grab your piece of America. Don't retreat back into the bubble where, where he came from. Yeah. And, you know, my mom did that when she joined the CIA, and he was very proud of her, and he was very proud of me. And I didn't quite understand how until he died. And I'd just gotten out of law school, and I went back for the funeral. And at, I learned that at his request, he was buried in a Harvard Law School t-shirt. Hmm. So of all the things that he had seen and all that he had done, <clears throat> that's what he chose to take to the grave with him. And... You know, yeah, it's because he's proud of me, but I think it's something else. You know, he's saying that you know, his family had finally made it in America. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that for people like me who've been the beneficiary of the work of others, yeah. you know, still, we all stand on other people's shoulders. Like we all, a lot of us have a story like that. And I could tell a version of that story with my German Irish grandparents on my dad's side. Um, so, so, but it's, but people, the, there's an element, there's a strong element of that in Texas because, you know, San Antonio's approaching its 300th anniversary. San Antonio's been around a long time and it was Spanish when it started. Parts of El Paso are actually older. So, you know, people have been here for a very, very long time, but they haven't always been included in the political system. They haven't been, um, you know, they haven't been, uh, you know, certainly as, you know, the, the after post-Civil War and all of that, the really discriminated against and treated differently. Um, so there's always been this sort of old Mexican-American world that's been at the heart of Texas. Um, but you, you take that and you add on top of that recent waves of immigration, and uh, both from within, uh, from elsewhere in the United States and uh, outside of uh, the country. And you build on top of that core, and it, you're getting to the point where you're close to 50%. So... Um, this week, uh, Virginia, yeah. um, you know, the Democrats in New Jersey, too, uh, it was a good week, right? Uh, yeah. Would you say yes, yes. maybe? <laughs> yes. I think so, yeah. Um, uh, what percentage 
I mean, wh- what do you think is playing a role in that? And how do you think it's going to play out in 2018? There's a lot of people, you know, there's, there is the assumption that, um, uh, that there's, this is a wave against Trump. Uh, there is an uh, assumption that this is a wave against the incredibly conservative and, mm-hmm. I, in my opinion, quite disgusting views of some of the Republicans that were mm-hmm. running, especially, I mean, Chris Christie, I think, should be in jail, personally. That's my right. personal opinion. Uh, um, and uh, and the, the, the stuff that's gone on in Virginia, I sure. think, is just disgusting. And, right. and, I, and I wonder how much of that is, has been the response, and it's just that state thing. Do you think that... Uh, when we get around to 2018, mm-hmm. uh, which is arguably probably the most important uh, election year we've had in God knows how long because yeah. of the potentialities of what Trump can and cannot do. Right. Uh, do you think that this wave will continue or um, what, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I'm kind of making the bet that it, it, it will. And wh- um, but, what, but what are you guys doing in the Democratic Party that's going to – that's really kind of getting that message across? So, so I, I think that – you know, when people say the Democratic Party, I think they assume that there's some kind of core leadership, cohesion, organized effort. It's much more ad hoc. And, you know, when, when I decided to run, um, you know, I, I had friends who were involved, the, the, the Castros and others who, who encouraged me. And, um, you know, I got a, a, a lot of support from the, the DCCC, but I've never had any contact with anybody from the DNC for example. And, you know, there's no one really in charge right now. Uh, and in so charge of the DNC? Of the, of yeah. the Democratic yeah. Party, generally. Yeah. Like, there's no, Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing, because it, it enables all of us out here in, in places like Texas to remake the Democratic Party in the way we think it should be made. And, and you get a little bit of freedom to do what you think is right for your district. Uh, that, that's how I'm viewing it and how I'm acting anyway. And you know, I always thought for districts like this, which is a 50-50 basically seat, that uh, it, you know Hillary plus four seat, the Republican won by a point and a half. So very much in play. Traditionally, people thought that for these type of seats, you have to be kind of hard to define and a little bit all over a lot of issues and hedging and, and sort of mushy. And I think that was something that was imposed from more powerful authorities I mean, within a centrally organized institution. And we don't really have that right now. And I personally don't view the way to win these seats as that kind of middle of the road, mushy way. I think you have to have clearly defined positions and be ready to defend them. They may just not all be on the left. So, uh, you know, I think it's going to, I'm going to make the point to people, it's going to be hard to categorize me. Because I'm going to be so, on the left so on some things and not so, on others. So let's go through, let's go through a list of things. Sure. Um, uh, gun control. So, I'm a gun owner, supported the Second Amendment, but uh, I spent a lot of time as a federal prosecutor. We haven't talked about this yet, but um, so the last seven years before I left to do this job, I was a federal prosecutor in Del Rio on the border and in San Antonio. And a lot of the cases I worked on were trying to keep guns out of the hands of the drug cartels. And, uh, you know, you may or may not know, or your listeners may not know, that most of the guns that are the Zetas and the uh, uh, Sinaloa cartel and the Gulf cartel, some of the most dangerous organizations on the planet, most of their guns come from the United States. They're smuggled out of the United States to Mexico. Wait, so so the guns that these cartels are using, are they bought legally or illegally? How are they? they... Well, that's that's just it. I mean, a little bit of both, but mostly um, places like gun shows. So here's an example. So there's a case that I worked on, uh, a guy named Loscano Lascano. He was the leader of the Zeta cartel, and he was killed by the... the Zeta Ma- cartel? Yeah, so yeah, one, of the, yeah. Yeah, one of the biggest... One of the big three. One of the big three, that's right. And they controlled... I, I spent a lot of time working Zeta cases because they had the part of the border that, that, we, that we had. And um, so Loscano Lascano was killed by Las Marinas, the Mexican Marines, in Mexico several years ago. And... Among the guns that was found with him was an AK-47. The Zetas were sloppy, and they didn't scratch out the serial number. So me, working with ATF and HSI, we were able to trace that gun back, buyer by buyer, witness by witness, to a couple guys at a gun show in San Antonio. And we actually prosecuted them and convicted them. They went to jail. Wow. Um, But 
you know, gun shows don't have to do background checks. No. They don't have to maintain any kind of paperwork. They just got to, people just walk up there. You can buy five AR-15s and walk out the door. And that's what the cartels do. They look for those unregulated spaces like gun shows. And, and that's, they exploit those weaknesses. So what so, did you charge the two guys with that sold a gun? So we, cho- we charged them. Uh, so one of them was a felon. So that was easy because he was a felon in possession. Always so, is. Yeah. Always is. The other we charged with uh, being in the gun selling business without a license, which is a five-year felony. And is it that they had sold, did, had they sold guns to people in the Mexican cartel or they had sold them to just random people that had then in turn so sold them? They sold people, they sold guns to people that they probably, at least they claimed they didn't know they were in the cartel. <clears throat> and I, I've prosecuted people for selling guns specifically to the cartel. So that's guns that they know are going outbound. So that's an export control violation. So different, different law. But with these guys, like we caught them with 75 assault rifles going to the gun show, and or somewhere, somewhere around 75. <clears throat> and you know, basically, they couldn't make the argument that they weren't in the business of selling guns if they had that many. And we'd bought several of them. An undercover had bought several of them already. And um, you know, the 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 gun show. The, the way the law works with gun shows, the idea is you can sell your personal collection at a gun show. It's just like selling it to your neighbor. Um, but you can't be in the business of selling guns because then you have to be regulated like a gun store. So the conceit with a lot of the gun shows is, hey, these are just people selling their individual collections. But with these guys, they couldn't make that argument because they were regularly selling and they were selling a lot and it was assault rifles. And, and so, so. so if you're... So you're, you're would you say you're pro-gun or... And, and the, re- the reason I ask yeah. this question is, how do you feel about AR-15s? Do you think that, that people <laughs> should be allowed to have those? Yeah. So, it, it, so here's the thing people got to understand about Texas, is that everybody has a gun. I have a gun. I have two guns. Uh-huh. Uh, hunting and, and uh, gun ownership is a very big part of life. Um, and, you know, AR-15s are not used for hunting. Um, and, you know, do, do people really need to have them for home safety? I mean, probably not. But they, there is a, um, you know, do you, is it going to help the kind of the, the spate of violence we've got to go to ban their sale? Um, I don't know that that's going to make, that's a pretty marginal thing in, in the long run. There are other things you could do uh, that would be more impactful. So universal background checks. So close that gun show loophole. That was a, that's a bigger deal. Um, making sure that uh, we have a, that ATF and others have a better sense of who actually has the guns. Because right now that's actually very difficult. So you actually an ATF agent has to actually go to a gun store and look at a piece of paper yep. to, to determine whether or not a sale's been done. And that's and it's they can't upgrade that anymore because the law forbids them from upgrading it. It's it's a little bit crazy. So if you go out and you buy two handguns from a gun store. The gun store has to notify ATF, but if you go buy two AR-15s, they don't. Why is that? Because that's just the way the quirks of the law. Because the, the, you know, the and gun lobby and others fight any potential changes to try and make uh, ATF and other organiz- other entities' ability to police the gun laws. They, just, they want to make that harder. So, uh, but how? But does it? How will it change? I mean, it's it. it I, I grew up in England, right? Yeah. By the time we are done recording this podcast, there will be more people that have died in America at the hands of guns than yeah. will have died in the entire year in the United right. Kingdom, and and it, and I mean, it just to me, it's it's literally like going back to that Martian analogy. Like <laughs> I, I look around this country sometimes and I think, what the fuck are people thinking? Yeah. Well, I, and so and right. and then. You know, I, I, after this latest shooting um, yeah. uh, this week, uh, which um, 26 people killed in the church, I found myself on, uh, um, on the NRA's Twitter feed, and they have this campaign of a good guy with a gun, which they, they tweet out a story every day of a good guy with a gun who, who stopped a bad guy, apparently. Um, and there's a story, there was a, there was a link on, of, a, of a TV feed um, from the president of the NRA and he was being interviewed in, in Texas, actually, yep. as a, t- a local TV Texas um, show. And uh, and the way he was, the president of the NRA was was pushing it is like, you know, we're just this little group of people. We don't have a lot of money. And yeah. we're standing up against Mike Bloomberg, a billionaire, and the media, which is hates guns. And, and it feels like 
it feels like there is they have no interest in any change whatsoever. Yeah. Do you think there ever will be any? I do, actually. How? It's going to take... Well, it's not going to happen with a Republican House and Republican Senate and probably not without a, without a Democratic president. So start, start there. I mean, you have to have... Okay, but, 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 but in response to that, we had a Democratic president, a Democratic House. Right. We had Sandy Hook happen and nothing yes. changed. Yeah, that's, but you didn't have a Democratic House then and, at Sandy Hook. Got it. You had a Republican House and a Republican Senate. Yeah. And uh, the, yeah, the gun lobby has been very good at, sort of, at how it handles and scares elected officials. But that is eroding a little bit. How? So <clears throat> even gun owners support universal background checks. So I, I, had, a, I had lunch with a, a sheriff of Brewster County sorry, uh, a couple weeks ago. Brewster has is, is, got a big chunk of the border, and it's in West Texas. And, you know, this is a guy who really wants to have the authority to, um, you know, to arrest illegal aliens who are crossing his part of the territory rather than just calling Border Patrol, hey, you've got people walking down the street. Um, and he owns a gun store, and he's in favor of universal background checks. And so even, I think, a lot of the most hardcore gun folks understand that you've got to be able to know where the guns are and be able to keep them from going into the hands of dangerous people. And that's, that's a that erosion, that sort of consensus building, that's new. I think there's actually room to, to make progress there. The, other, but the thing that people got to understand is we have over 330 million guns in this country. Yeah. Right? So the idea, you know, what I tell people on the right who are worried about these things is if you think the federal government is, is interested in or capable in rounding up 330 million guns, you haven't met the federal government. <laughs> um, and that kind of goes the other way, too. you yeah. got to tell people, look, these things are out there, yeah. and you're not going to be able to collect them all. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, how do we deal with this problem in a, in a meaningful way um, that is realistic? And, uh, you know, one way to do that is do we, we got to know where these things are. we got to know who's got them. we got to have some regulations to make sure that every time there's a sale— that we, we have some way of knowing it's not going to somebody who's got a history of spousal abuse or um, escaped from a mental institution, a mental institution or, or, yeah. or the like. So one of the, the jobs I had at the U.S. Attorney's Office is I spent about half of my time when I was in San Antonio doing national security cases. And that's counterterrorism, counterespionage, some counterproliferation. And... Uh, so counterproliferation, meaning we did a case where U.S. technology was going to Iran and we were prosecuting the people that were doing that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the counterterrorism cases now involve trying to identify the next Tsarnaev brothers, the next, you know, basically lone wolves who are inspired by ISIS or other organizations and are looking to, you know, take a gun into a shopping center. And so we're you were trying to find those folks. And, and sometimes this ends up with, keep it hypothetical, like some dumb kid who follows the wrong people on Twitter. Yep. And you have to make the decision of, do we want to make a federal case out of this or do we want to intervene? And more, more and more, at least under the Obama administration, we would just intervene. And actually, I've seen that work successfully. Somebody who's 16 who's following the wrong people on Twitter, you go and you sit down with his parents and they're like, oh my God. And that effectively shuts it down. But... Um, the, uh, every now and then, you come across someone who doesn't have any affiliation with a terrorist organization, um, but looks like they could be dangerous. And so when we found those folks, uh, it, you know, we had to be creative because there's not a lot of tools. So what did you do? Uh, so we usually work with state and local authorities. So if there was a history of mental illness, we could try and get them into a psych hold. Uh, if they were in the military, then we could get the military involved and sort of... Um, put them in a psych hold, but we didn't know whether or not they had guns. We had to do a lot of surveillance. We had to, uh, a lot of times we would do a hard interview. We'd send the agents in to go talk to them. And a lot of times that just would spook them. Um, you know, the, Is it a hard interview when they intentionally spook them? It, kind of. Yeah. Hey, we know what you're doing. Be careful. We're watching you. Um, and so, but the thing is, the Bureau is not really looking for those guys. They're looking for the terrorists. Mm. They're not looking for the random one-offs who might go to Las Vegas and knock out a window and, and shoot a bunch of people. I think we should reevaluate that. 
because I think there's room for uh, you know giving a law enforcement agency, and it's probably the FBI, the the mission of go find these people and try and shut this down before it happens. And uh, that might you know it might instead of just looking for uh, you know terrorist blogs or ISIS Twitter followers, it might be looking in different parts of the internet <clears throat> who's talking about this. Asking for tips. Hey, do you think someone's dangerous? And uh, you know, treat these almost like domestic terrorism cases. There's a whole legal issue about how domestic terrorism is defined, and it's very differently defined than international terrorism. We can, we can get into that if you want. But uh, if, if we spend more time trying to identify these people and intervene early with, and hopefully give people more tools. You think you know, that there's a way that help. we can stop some of these things from happening? I think so. Like the, the Vegas shooter. Yeah. So if, if ATF had known that this guy bought 30 assault rifles or whatever it was in yeah. a couple of weeks, yeah. they would have intervened. They would have at least interviewed him. Yeah. Um, and that, those purchases may not have been illegal. They may not have been able to arrest him, but they at least would have talked to him and kept an eye on him. Um, this, uh, this, this recent shooting in Sutherland Springs, uh, which, is right down, which is right outside of San Antonio, so it's right down the street, um, you know that that's a case where the laws and the books should have prevented him from getting oh, a gun. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It just yeah. the system broke down, which these are human institutions that does happen. Um, but that that's a case where this guy just going to the gun store to try and buy a gun would have been a flag. Uh, if if the database had been run right. So, let's move on to another topic. So, you okay. live in Texas. <clears throat> Not far from a little area where there are now six, I believe, prototypes for a border wall <laughs> that a certain yeah. uh, uh, president uh, made part of his campaign. Yep. Uh, how do you feel about the wall? How do people in Texas feel about it? I think the wall is a terrible idea, and most people in Texas think it's a terrible idea. I mean, we have the border in Texas is a river. It's the Rio Grande. Yeah. So you can put the wall in the middle of the river. Uh, so no, but they... But you know, it may, it'll is, be a beautiful wall in the middle of a river. <laughs> right. Or, or they're, what they're going to do is they're going to run it through a bunch of ranch land. Yeah. And so, you know, these ranches that people have had for generations that exist where they are because they have access to water, now are going to, we're going to cut off their water supply. Uh, that it, it doesn't make any sense. And it's just, it, it's the sort of thing that people who aren't from the border, who haven't spent time there, think is a good idea. And... You know, the, the, the thing that people don't realize is it's not effective. Oh, it's like, completely not effective. Like I've done I have thousands, literally thousands of border cases, particularly when I was in Del Rio. And, you know, we're talking about drugs and guns and human trafficking and a lot of legal immigration <clears throat> cases that you just do when you're a border prosecutor. And so I've done a lot of work with the Border Patrol, okay, what are the drug trafficking routes? How do we make sure that we've got somebody there for the drug trafficking routes? And you know, if you have a wall, it's only going to work if you've got a border patrol agent standing next to it. Otherwise, yeah. they'll go over it, under it, through it. Have you? Have, so, have, is there a worry that, or not a worry, or is there a, a timeline as to when the cartels will start using drones and things like that? <laughs> no, I they're mean, already they're already doing that. So they they're already sure. bringing drugs and guns and things yeah. through drones. Well, the thing is, people get. I mean, look, border patrol is actually more effective at catching people that are crossing than people give them credit for. Uh, and you can tell to some extent by the economics of the drug trade. So uh, cartels only move marijuana with people carrying it across the river. Why not? Well, marijuana is relatively cheap by size. So if you've got a backpack of 50 pounds of marijuana, that's maybe 25, 30 grand, at least on the border. Worth more if you get further in, but on the border, it's maybe that, that amount. If you've got that amount of, of heroin or cocaine, I mean, the key of coke is probably going to be 20 grand on the border. So suddenly, instead of 20, 25 grand, it's 100, 150 grand. And they don't take that risk because they can't, um, you know, they can't play the game where they're just throwing quantity at the river and some percentage is going to get through because the individual pack is more important. So, so how do they, so they get marijuana through with people? How do they get the coke and the heroin through? Uh, it's in, in the meth. Uh, usually through vehicles at checkpoints, huh. so they drive them in, and you know they uh, if they're if they're doing it right, it's very difficult to detect. Uh, you know, put How do in, they do it? It's not detected by the dogs and gas tanks. So huh. if they they wrap it, they put it in the gas tank. It's covered by gasoline, and uh, sometimes the dogs get it. Say there's residue on the fingers, they close the door. A lot of times the dogs will hit on that. Uh, we don't have anything uh, technologically superior to a dog's nose. 
still. That's and, amazing. <laughs> uh, you know, so yeah, there's always dogs at at the checkpoints <clears throat> and at the the ports of entry. So people people drive in from Mexico. So um, yeah, all of the most valuable stuff comes in there. So. so Keeping on this topic, but moving away from dogs, dogs and, and drugs, um, what are your thoughts on, on the immigration policies and, uh, that are going on right now? So that's one of the reasons why I'm running. Um, and, you know, it, it's, like I said, I've done, all, I've done so many of these border cases that it's given me a chance to see not just what works, but what doesn't work, like the little tragedies of the, of the system. So the, the case in particular that is worth talking about is about a year and a half ago. And I was, I was on duty. I was on call. So we all take turns being on, on call. Something and where, come, where were you at this the, point? It was in San Antonio. In San Antonio. So something yeah. comes in in the middle of the night. Hey, we're going to take this case or not. And, and you decide whether or not to take it. So there was this one arrest. Um, I think he was in Catula. And the, the defendant was, uh, had lived in San Antonio for 15 years. He was undocumented. He was a construction worker. And had basically stayed out of trouble. Uh, you know, worked hard, supported his family. And his, his family was he's a U.S. citizen wife and three U.S. citizen kids. I think the youngest was nine or ten years old. Uh, but his mom lived in Tamaulipas, which is in northern Mexico, and she got sick. So he went home to see his mother. Uh, got caught crossing the river on the way back. He'd been deported before, so that's a felony. And, uh, uh, you know, so Border Patrol arrested him. We charged him. Uh, I, I took the case. And... Um, and he pled guilty because there's really not much of a defense to it. And you get to, we got to sentencing. So in front of a federal judge, the judge, me, the defense lawyer, even the agents, everybody agreed on the lowest possible sentence because this guy had What no, is the lowest possible sentence? It was time served in his case. Got it. So I think he'd been in seven, eight months. And uh, yeah, because this guy didn't have a violent history or much of a criminal history at all. So we just, okay, he'd been in seven, eight months. That's what he's going to do. Um, but the judge did something unusual. Uh, he, he allowed... Uh, this defendant to hug his family before he got sent off to federal prison and then to get deported and sent back to Mexico. So I'm in the courtroom watching this, and it's a difficult, tearful scene. I mean, uh, you know, very clearly we're ripping this family apart. And it, it occurred to me while I'm sitting there, why are we spending our resources on a guy like this? This guy was basically, we as a society have invited him here to do work, you know, work that needed to be done, but we are paying him under the table, which drives down wages. We're making him bear the risk of a difficult border crossing and living life under the threat of arrest and deportation. It's not fair to him. It's not fair to other workers here. It doesn't make any sense, but um, that's some 85% of the people that we catch are guys like him, economic migrants, and you don't know who they are until you get them. So we're spending all of these resources on people who are coming here just to work and that we all sort of accept as coming here to work. It doesn't make sense, but it's the way the law is written. The law is written one way and the machine goes into autopilot. Everybody in this equation, including me, swore an oath to uphold the law and that's what we were doing. You can't fix this. You can't change, uh, you can't change the law. You can't change how immigration policy works without getting into Congress and changing the way the law is written. And uh, it's it sort of, it, it's one of these things where it became clear to me that this is public service where it is most needed. And I've worked in public service my whole life. This is where it's got to be done. This is where it's really going to matter. So, and so, so. you want to change the law to be what? So uh, comprehensive immigration reform. This idea has been out there for a while. And this is what's part of what's frustrating about this is that every package that's come close to passing, and there's been a couple came close in the Bush administration, came close under Obama, the bill that got out of the Senate, um, involved a significant increase in guest worker visas. So a person like this guy would have been able to just use, he would have probably gotten a guest worker visa and would have been able to go back and forth to be able to do work above board, paid, uh, you know, above the, the, at least above the minimum wage. He's in construction, so probably higher than that. Um, but without having to sneak around, without having to break the law, uh, along with a path to citizenship for the people who are here, uh, DACA and legal status for others, and an increase in border security. Like that deal has been out there and would not only pass the Senate, would have passed the House if they'd put it on the floor. But they didn't because 
the half of the Republicans didn't support it. It would have passed with Republican and Democratic support. But because it didn't have majority support among the Republicans, Boehner wouldn't put it on the floor. So the problem persists and it just drifts and keeps getting worse. And we keep having these little tragedies because the Republican po uh, politics are so screwed up that they can't get around to solving a problem that everybody recognizes needs to be solved. And so this problem just persists. So I, I do want to talk about the Republican politics being screwed up uh, a, a little more. But I, I have a just to go back to the story. Um, when that call comes in, uh, um, do you are you like um, in just work mode, and this is mm -hmm. just a this is just a number, or are you thinking to yourself, um, you know, this is a human being who has a family? Uh, when you decide to prosecute. And I know you say that the law is the law is the law, but I got pulled over a few weeks back and the cop yeah. was like, eh, you seem like a good guy. You yeah. missed the stop sign. Right. Like, don't worry about it. Right. Um, you know, there's, there's a book out there that says we all, three felonies a day. We all kind of, yeah. uh, do, like what's, as a, as a prosecutor and as a human being, what's, what's going through your head? So there, there's both things. Both is, you know, well, when you when you take the case, you don't know anything about the person. You just hear there's a guy across the border. Well, yeah, he's been, he's undocumented. He's been deported X number of times. Usually, you hear something about a criminal history, and um, and and so that's you've got that sort of data set. Okay, this guy's got a uh, you know a felony conviction for a drug count at, in the state, and he got deported three times, and now he's back. Okay, fine. That that hits the the prosecution guidelines that the office sets, which are set as part of main justice, and this is in both administrations. Here's our policies for how we're going to enforce these laws, and as a line prosecutor, you get this sort of set of, here are the criteria. You're looking for some kind of criminal history, usually, and usually prior deportations before you take these cases. Now, with other cases, it's a little different. I mean, it's, you know, the, we're talking about reactive cases that just kind of come in. And it's usually like, hey, this guy was uh, arrested at the port of entry. He got 10 keys of coke in the car. He told three different stories to the CBP officers. When he came in, it's pretty clear he's lying. Okay, fine. That, that guy we're going to charge. That's, that's most of what these are. But it's, you do learn, I mean, certainly as these cases progress, and usually at sentencing, because that's really when you delve, the court delves into the, the person's background and history, because a judge wants to issue a fair sentence, so they need to understand who the person is. That's where you really get into that, on those types of cases. Most of what I did, particularly later in my time, was bigger, proactive cases where we're identifying people who have committed crimes, a lot of public corruption cases, that's a lot of what I did. Uh, these people are paying bribes, let's build the case on them. And so you know a lot about them before you charge, and before the process even starts. Um, but yeah, with immigration cases, you're always aware of the humanity. But so in you know. the courtroom that day, <clears throat> when the families are hugging, yeah. w was there a part of you that was like, "This, this is not. This is just awful." I mean, that, yeah, I mean no, that, hearing that's, that's, the story to me just makes me. No, I was sitting there like, "This is, this sucks. Like, this isn't. I mean, this isn't why I wanted to be a prosecutor. Um, I wanted to do. I wanted to do the big." The other cases I was doing, these big cartel cases, I mean, really bad people, politicians taking bribes, uh, you know, people who are working with terrorist organizations. Those are the kind of cases I was mostly doing and preferred to be doing. But everybody's got to do a certain number of these reactive yeah. immigration cases. And, you know, it, I think a lot of us have gone through this system. And I'm sh I know this is true of a lot of the judges uh, kind of recognize that okay, this, is, this is a little silly. This doesn't make a lot of sense. There's a lot of little tragedies here. And you see it a lot in the sentencing. A lot of judges will, particularly visiting judges, will come down to the border and just cut these sentences because it's, when you get to the situation where someone's clearly an economic migrant and not moving drugs or doesn't have a significant criminal history, isn't dangerous, they tend to give lighter sentences. And uh, that's the way actually the law is written. The sentencing guidelines sort of push judges in that direction. Um, but, you know, it's, it, as I was sitting there, I mean, the reason why I tell the story is because it had an impact on me. Like, I, I think this is not, he doesn't, yeah, he deserves it in the sense that the law is written the way it's written and he's violating the law. But 
we tolerate, particularly in the immigration context, so much of this sort of wink and a nod, you know, 40% of the agriculture sector is illegal labor. Uh, construction sector may not be quite that high, but it's really significant. And, you know, think about, you, know, you drive through a neighborhood and you think the people who are working in these homes and working in, in gardens and working on the construction road, and a lot, a lot of those people are coming here and are, are undocumented, are not... They're here, be, they're here because they have families. And, and they're invited here. Like, we're asking them to come. Yeah. And it's, we're asking them to come and giving, you know, come here and do this work. But we're putting all of the burden on them. And we're putting all of the risk on them. And it's a cruel system that it doesn't make any sense. So, I, so the question I have to go back to this Republican thing is, is I don't, I literally do not understand how... These people like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, I just think is a complete just <laughs> lunatic. So I won't even put him. I don't think that there's a thought that goes through his head yes. that doesn't have him involved. Yeah. But like these true Republicans that, you know, that, that talk about God and going to church and this, that and the other, how they don't think about these, that these are human beings with families um, that, as you just said, in many instances we've invited here, right. um, we're going to tear their lives apart and their and and separate children from parents and so on yep. and so forth. Do, I mean, you've spoken to these people. Do they do they have like in behind closed doors? Do they feel remorse? Do they care? Uh, I don't know that I've had this conversation with Paul Ryan. I've never had a conversation with Paul Ryan, but at my, I don't think they care. You just, just don't not, think that they No, care. I don't think it's... I mean, look, you know, I read an interview somewhere where you know, Paul Ryan was telling a friend in college that you know, he's, his lifelong dream was to cut Medicaid. You know, I don't... That's... That, if, you, if your Am, lifelong ambitions. dream is to cut Medicaid, then I don't think you really care about you know, people that you probably write off as, as well, they broke a law to get here. Um, but so, so I, guess, I guess the question is not just the immigrants, but in Medicaid too, healthcare, all these things. Like yeah. what... I think he approaches it from a very different philosophical point of view. And so Medicaid, I've had some personal experience with this. My, my grandmother, my dad's side had Alzheimer's. And, you know, my dad and his younger sisters, when it became clear that she was not going to be able to take care of herself, you know, they had to figure out what to do. And either one of them was going to have to dedicate their lives, essentially, to taking care of her because she needed that kind of care. Or they were going to be bankrupt trying to pay for pay for the kind of care she needed. Where they ended up, though, is they ended up in a very good facility, and they burned down all of her assets, my grandmother's assets, and Medicaid picked up the rest. And she lived for 10 years in this facility. And there was some out-of-pocket on, on my parents and my dad and his sister's side, but it was mostly covered by Medicaid. And, you know, we don't know what situation we're going to be in. Like, I don't know if I'm going to be in that situation. I know I'm not going to want to burden my kids. I know I'm not going to bankrupt my kids to my kid. I only have one. But um, to, to have to take care of me. And we build these systems. We buy insurance and create things like Medicaid because ahead of time, we don't know whether or not we're going to need it. And we want to have a fair as possible system so that make so. If you do happen to be in that situation, that you're covered. And, you know, my grandmother wasn't rich. Her husband was in the, she was an English teacher. And, you know, it's like we were overseas. I would send her letters. She would send them back marked up in red ink. <laughs> I should go to my dad going, what, what is this? And she's like, just fixing the mistakes next time. <laughs> That's really funny. And, uh, you yeah, know, and my grandfather was in the Navy. He was an officer. They had a good middle class life, but they weren't rich. But they, depended on this safety net that they'd contributed to all their life and it was there for her. And people don't realize that that's part of what Medicaid is. It's not just, I think people have these assumptions that Medicaid is for the poor or, or for other people, but it might but very even, well be there for all of us. Even, but even if it is for the poor. Even it is yeah, for the I poor. Know, know. It's like, it's for the fucking poor. Like these <laughs> people. But, I, yes, yeah. but I, I don't think Paul, Ryan is starting from a point of view where I guess that, it's not, that's it's not, something that we shouldn't be doing at all. Like he's coming from outer space. I just, you know, it, I, it's, 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 to me, it's not just Paul Ryan. It's, it's the, it's this Republican contingent that it is just, it literally boggles my mind. Be all, 
beyond all comprehension right. that you can run for office in order to make people's lives more difficult. <laughs> you know, I, 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 all right, so I was at I was in El Paso and I was te- speaking to a group of community college students and I was asked to define the difference between the two parties. And for Democrats, it was, I thought it was pretty easy. Like, your Democrats stand for, for progress and using the tools available to us to solve problems and equal opportunity and justice. That's what the Democrats stand for. The Republicans, you know, five years ago, I could have probably given you an answer. But now I don't think they can give you that no, answer. No, I agree. I don't, I don't think they have an ideological <laughs> core anymore. I think it's, they're at the point where they're so, you know, they're basically doing donor service. That's what this tax bill is. They're trying to return as much money as they can to their donors. And it's, you know, it may not be corrupt in the way that I've done public corruption cases, where it's like an envelope of cash slid across the table, but it's corrupt in its own way. And I think when you lose your moral core, when you're at the point where you don't know why you're in government, you don't, you're not focused on trying to help people or solve problems, then you, what are you left with other than donor service? But I don't want to overgeneralize these things because there are Republicans who are focused on trying to solve problems. And you know, when I was on the House Intelligence Committee, I traveled with both Republicans and Democrats from all over the world, Yemen, Afghanistan, uh, you know, Egypt, all over, uh, not, not Egypt, uh, Ethiopia. And um, so I got to know a lot of these guys really well. And you know, some of them are, are uh, there are some that are how you're describing them, kind of ideological party hacks. But there are others who are focused on trying to solve problems. They're just coming from a different perspective. And you got to learn to respect their point of view, even though I may not 100% agree with it. We may not agree on the means, but we may agree on the ends. And there are still a good number of those people out there in the Republican Party. And we have to, if we're going to solve any of these problems, we're going to have to work, work with together. Them. We have to yeah. identify them, create a space where they can work with us, and then, <clears throat> and then focus on, on solutions that we can all agree on. So bringing this back um, as we come to the end of, of, which has been a fascinating discussion. Um, uh, so you're running against a Republican. Yes. Uh, also a former CIA yes. agent. Um, have, do, uh, do you guys ever go out for beers and like talk about the old CIA <laughs> you, you days? Know, the, funny, the funny thing is I, I would, um, you know, he and I would, we've had brief conversations. I, I, I haven't talked in substance with him. And look, he's a, he's a pleasant guy. I've, if this wasn't all going on, you know, we'd, we've got a lot of people in common. We'd probably be friends. But it's not about, you know, it, the, that fact doesn't matter. I mean, even though he's a relatively pleasant person and, uh, you know, isn't a, you know, isn't on the, you know, doesn't talk in a way that makes him sound really extreme, his voting record is really conservative. 96% with Donald Trump. 96% with Donald Trump. 96% with Donald Trump. Wow. And And is that going to play into your favor? uh, Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) I mean, so what what we say is he's done a very good job of trying to... Uh, create a moderate image and you know he'll for example he'll talk when he's back in the district he'll talk against the wall and this is what he's tried to use to create a a moderate image I'm opposed to the wall but when he's back in Washington he votes to fund it and it's it's sort of one of these old Washington stories there's a big bill going through that funds part of it funds the wall and there'll be an amendment to strip out that wall funding that everybody knows is going to fail otherwise it wouldn't be allowed to hit the floor he gets to vote for that amendment, which fails. And then he votes for final passage. And he tries to say, well, I voted against it before I voted for it. We're not going to let him get away with that. How are you not going to let him get away with that? Well, I mean, we're going to constantly talk about how look, you voted for the wall. You voted to fund the thing. And he, he might say, look, we're, there are other things in the bill that I liked. Like, well, there are other things in the bill that people like Henry Cuellar liked and that others on the border who were congressmen also liked. They voted no because wall funding is important enough for them. All this means is that wall funding wasn't important enough for, for Will Hurt. And because he voted yes and he could have voted no. But he's an organization man. You know, this is uh, Paul Ryan gives him a little bit of room every now and then to, to cast a vote against the party, just enough to sort of create an argument. But when they really need him, he's there. 
So when they, when they really needed him on the tax bill, he was, he's been there. Um, you know, they let him at the last minute vote no on health care, but he was there on every vote leading up to it. So it's, we need to focus people's attention on how he actually votes in Washington. Because at the end of all this, that's really what matters. And uh, I think we can do that. I mean, part of, the, part of what I hope to do is, you know, I can neutralize his advantage. Every single thing he says is, as a former undercover CIA officer, dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. And that's his entire political brand. Well, look, that's the world I come from. That's what my parents did their whole lives. I've worked on the House Intelligence Committee. I've done national security cases. I've got my own alpha tough guy job. You're not going to have that advantage on me. So what's left? It's his voting record. So that'll be easier for us to focus on. Forget all this stuff that he's going to try and talk about. Focus on what he does. And what he does is not consistent with the values of this district. And so... When does it really get into full gear? Like, when is it, is it, you know, war on the battleground in, in El Paso? So, uh, the primary is March 6th, um, and we feel good about the primary, but um, we're taking it seriously, but it, things, things are looking good. And then uh, we expect them to start, well, we expect them to start really spending money to come after me then, uh, and maybe before, <laughs> frankly. Uh, when I was in Washington uh, for a few meetings a few weeks ago, I had a tracker. So this is somebody walking up to me on the street with a camera rolling, someone that um, knew my name by sight, knew me, and was asking questions about guns, actually, trying to trap me. And so, that and mean, then they take those videos and post them on social media. Yeah, and, and blah, try blah, and splice them, dice them. So what yeah. we did with that, I actually told them this, the story about Lascano's gun yeah. and how we traced it back and yeah. why that's important for... Background checks. I just decided to treat this person like a reporter. I'm going to yeah. look at her and give an interview. We actually then found that recording on a Republican YouTube group, took it off, and gave it to Moms Demand Action. We go, look, they tried to trap me. Here it is. This yeah. is where I stand. It's the same thing I'm going to tell them, Moms Demand Action. Same thing I'm going to tell the Republicans. Same thing I'm going to tell the press. This is, this is important. But it means that they're worried. And they're trying to play really early and so we expect more dirty tricks because when they don't really have an agenda a policy agenda that is something that people will recognize as being able to help them all they're left with so, is dirty so let tricks. me ask you a question um uh, and we're going to wrap up in a few minutes but um let's just pretend that you are running against you <laughs> what would your strategy be uh if if i would uh if i were running against me i would uh resign and move on and leave it in <laughs> hopefully they're listening I, I don't think they'll do that I, my guess is what they'll do is uh you know look i i didn't grow up in texas mm-hmm. and you know i've been in the district just about as long as will hurt has as an adult yeah and we came back about the same time um but they'll probably do a, a you didn't grow up here it was fine you know what it's true my wife did uh she's got long deep roots in san antonio and you know you grow up without any roots we my, it was important to my wife that she lived near her family, so that's what we did. That's where we've chosen to raise our family and, and settle down. And if they want to try and make a liability of that, go ahead. Just like hundreds of thousands of other people who've moved to San Antonio over the last 10, 15 years who are from somewhere else. Uh, so that, that's one thing they'll do. The problem, they might attack me for my you know, longtime friendship with the Castro brothers. I hope they do. <laughs> uh, I, I think that will backfire on them. Um, and, uh, you know, we assume that whatever they will do, will, it will probably be fabricated. It will, you know, they'll, they'll it'll, you know, that, this is what they do everywhere. I mean, so in, in a couple years ago, the guy, the Democrat used to have the seat, a guy named Pete Gallego. He's a friend of mine. Pete Gallego ran in 2012 and won uh, on a campaign about helping veterans. And most of what he did as a congressman was focused on helping veterans. And he was very effective at it. But the Republican attack ad two years later was all about how he was terrible for veterans. It was totally made up. And, uh, you know, and it, it had its impact. So how do you avoid that from happening to you? So we've got to be ready for it. And we've got to be ready with our own response. And it's got to be quick. And it's got to be... 
loud and you can't let any attack go unanswered, even if it's, oh, that's not true, I'm, I'm going to ignore it. You can't, take you can't uh, assume that it's, it'll just pass or people will know it's false. You have to respond to everything. So um, just to wrap up here, how many uh, seats are, are going to be in play in 18? So it, it depends on, well, I think the, the Democratic Party is going to try and play in, in well more than the number that we need to take back the House. I think we're going to play in 50, 60, 70 different seats. And how many do we need? Do you guys need to take an essay a week as I consider 24, myself? 25, yeah, 24, 25. 24, um, 25. What do you think the chances are that it happens? Good. Good. I think I think it's yeah. I think uh, I've met a lot of the people running in a lot of these other seats that got a lot of talent, really smart, accomplished people. Um, there's a lot of energy out there uh, in places that you wouldn't expect, like the north side of San Antonio or um, you know the Virginia suburbs. And it's uh, there's a lot more activism than there's been in the past, and there's a sense of people don't want to just accept what's happening. It's not good enough, and. They recognize that if you don't show up and vote, someone else is, and you're going to get what they want, and not what you want, and you're going to get left with what we have now. Which is a disaster. Which is a disaster. That's right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to this. It's been fascinating. Thanks. And uh, um, where can it. people follow you and donate to your campaign or whatever it is that they do in these <laughs> so, instances? Jayhulings.com. Uh, J-A-Y-H-U-L-I-N-G-S.com. That's our website. Great. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you. Thanks to my guest today, Jay Hullings. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a nice review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work and my editors at Vanity Fair. I will see you all next week.